2: Let's get into it. Uh, according to his website, retired major Danny, how do you pronounce your surname, Danny? I should have asked that.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it's actually Shorsen, as if there's Shoreson. a C instead of a J. Yeah, I don't know why that is. It's just a crazy Norwegian name. I'm like an eighth Norwegian, but I'm stuck with it. And my poor kid is like a 16th Norwegian, but it's just following that paternal line. Like
2: Ray, Ray always claims to be 16th. What is it, Navajo? What are you, uh, 16th Cherokee? Something? Cherokee. Cherokee. Just uh, enough to yeah. get
1: college for free. That's all I need.
2: <laughs> Danny Shawson, it always sounds like a Swedish chef thing. It's like, Hershey, Hershey, dirty dirty Hershey, 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 is uh, just another exasperating, insufferable, self-centered Leo with a minor messiah complex. Welcome to, welcome to the club of people with a minor messiah complex, uh, Danny. You're a good company. According like to... It. According to HuffPo, though, he is a US Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point. He served tours with reconnaissance units in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He's written a memoir and a critical analysis of the Iraq War, Ghost Riders of Baghdad. He lives with his wife and four sons near Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. These days, he is a critic of American imperialism and most importantly, in terms of credibility, He's a podcaster. Welcome to the show, Danny. Nice.
0: Oh yeah, thanks for having me on. It's funny about the bios. Uh, you guys are the first ones to actually uh, use one of my like self-deprecating uh, paragraphs from my personal website that may or may not have been written on a bar stool with a friend <laughs> who I paid to make the website. And then you, and then it's fun because you use the the old Huff Post one, which is like three or four years old. So, mm. so I'm not married. I only have two sons because I have ex stepsons, if that's a thing. Because when you spend seventeen years in the military, things get what's the old Mike MySpace profile complicated. That's the relationship right. status. But uh, but yeah, all 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 of that is true. Uh, and uh, all, glad to be here.
2: All of it's true or not true, but you know, <laughs> the you know, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. My first question, I think this is the thing that we all want to know, is uh, is there still any gold left at Fort Knox?
0: Well, you know, I mean, uh, I was there twice. I was stationed there twice. I've watched Goldfinger, uh, with uh, the James Bond movie more than twice. Uh and so I never really worked up the courage to test whether the security system there was as strong as it was in, in Goldfinger, but uh So it may or may not be there. Uh, I've heard that it could just be a ruse, right, that we have any gold at all and that it's been moved or, I don't know, just like stolen by the Illuminati or whatever you believe. But uh, Mm -hmm. theoretically, it's still there and there's like this special security force, which means probably just old like contractors who actually have like very little experience, but whatever.
2: Wasn't it all moved to to Building building 7 at the World Trade Center the day before... Uh, you know fake planes hit it or something I heard
0: you know I'm, I'm sure that that's uh, I'm sure that's one of the running uh, possibilities you know uh, n- no special knowledge yeah unfortunately I was just there uh, learning uh, tanks the first time which I never used and then uh, like reconnaissance stuff the second time uh, so mostly I just hung out in Radcliffe Kentucky which is the garden spot of the western world uh, and driving to Louisville to get some you know actual culture Moonshines.
2: Uh, in your book, uh, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, great book by the way. You've got to love any book that quotes Bunny Colvin from The Wire. One right. of one of the least appreciated, I think, characters from The Wire, but. I have deep, deep, deep love for Bunny Colvin. Um, He was a man who uh, put his money where his mouth was, and uh, really tried to (laughs) tried to make the world a bit of a better place. With uh, was it Hamsterdam? That's
0: right. Um, And he he was punished for it, which is what usually happens.
2: Yes, yeah, Yeah. punished for speaking the truth, and then he adopted one of the corner boys. I seem to recall too. Right. I can't remember his name. It began with an N, though I think he adopted uh, Naaman, in fact, it was Wee son.
0: Yeah, Weebei that's right. One of the great Barksdale crew wow. street guys, legend. Yeah, and his from mother from Staten was Island, like- by the way. From Staten oh. Island, a lot of those characters actually grew up. Wee Bay and a couple of others grew up in the same projects as the Wu Tang Clan. So, wow. a lot of pride as a Staten Islander of that.
2: <laughs> and right. his, his Naaman's mother was always like, "We go see Wee Bay." <laughs> I loved his mother. She was great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Pete Davidson too. He's, isn't he the King of Staten Island now? I think I saw oh, that. Apparently, right? apparently. so says guy. the movie. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah. So, yeah, um, good. anyway, uh, you, in the book, you describe yourself as an accidental soldier. Let's start with that. What, what do you mean by an accidental soldier?
0: Well, um, you know, I, in you know, on one, on one side, I, uh, I had always romanticized the, the military, you know, I don't come from a military family outside the fact that like my grandfathers were in the Navy and the army, you know, but so was everyone's grandfather who's my age, just because of World War II. Outside of that, we're we're not a military family. We're kind of a paramilitary family on my mother's side, uh, firemen and cops and such. But uh, so I had romanticized that I actually had wanted to be in the military. So you know, one person might look at that and say, Well, how are you were accidental if you wanted to be? I think what was accidental about it is my view of what that meant wasn't sort of professional soldier. You know, I never thought that someone from like kind of my background could go to West Point. Um, you know, there's like two people in the whole family, extended family, who'd ever gone to college. Um, I thought you had to be like a politician's kid to go there. But uh, But I was convinced to apply. And then I promised my father that if I, got in, which was like wink and nod, sort of, because, you know, it's really, you can't get in unless you're rich, right? Or, you know, the politician that I would go. And uh, so I did. And I think what was accidental about it is two things. Number one, I never thought I would be like a pro, you know, I thought you do like a four year bit, you get some stories and some old pictures and in a uniform and you can act like a cool guy and that you were a tough guy and then you're out and you just do a real life. And then the second part was, I really wasn't suited for it in a million ways. Uh, I did well in, in the army until the very end when I angered them. Um, you know, on paper, I was able to do all the things, but I was kind of a little bit too uh, cerebral and definitely sensitive as a kid. And uh, in some ways I was like the worst person to, to do it. Cause I just really like, didn't, I didn't like the killing and stuff. And uh, yeah. And I, and I like to think, and I like to read about the cultures of the countries we invade and occupy, and uh, and then I like to care. I can't help but care about the people. And wouldn't you know, that gets you in. And that's not the thing that they positively reinforce. So that's kind of the background to that.
2: You know, Winston Churchill. Um... Uh, once said something to the effect of uh, if you aren't a liberal when you're young, you have no heart, and if you're not a conservative when you get older, you have no brains. But he was a, he was a fucking blue-blood toff, so of course he would say that. Um, I went in the opposite direction. I was pretty far right when I was in my early 20s, Um, and then became a a lefty, the older that I got. The more that I read, the more that I thought, uh, it, it sort of led me to reach different conclusions. I really want to understand your journey from West Point to where you are now. Well, in particular... I mean, obviously, that's that's a long story, but, but are there a couple of defining moments that you can recall that shifted you from being what I imagine uh, at the time in the early 2000s after 9-11, you were uh, a, a typical American young patriot wanting to go out there and fight the good fight to where you are now. Are there a couple of definitive moments that you can walk us through?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think there are, and I'm always like skeptical of uh, of myself, actually, when I remember things, you know, I think that uh, memory is a strange thing. And that's why there's like a whole history of memory now among historians. Um, so it's difficult to know in retrospect, what was the pivot point, but I have put my finger on a few things. Um, first, there was, so I, I was I was very conservative in high school, like politically, or, or I wanted to be, you know, I, I mean, in, in many cases, I have a petulance to my personality that reacts to the mainstream. So if there's like, but if there was more like liberals around me, and I was like, I'm going to be different, right? Same reason I went into the military is like, I'm going to be the most special masculine thing. And if I can go to West Point, all the better. It was none of it was like, very good reasons. I mean, I told people it was because I loved America and stuff. But really, I loved the idea of being like a real man. Right. And what's the most fascinating thing to do? So it's pretty conservative, I guess. 9-11 happened when I was a plebe, which changed everything. Everyone chooses 9-11 as a pivot point. But when you watch the towers fall and you are a New Yorker, but you're 90 minutes up the river and you're in boxing class at West Point as a freshman. And then they let you run into the gym and watch and you watch in real time as the towers fall, knowing your dad works across the street, your uncles were firefighters. They all live. Family, friends died. All the corners are named after dead fire in my neighborhood now. But it was profound. But it was not even just that. It was because I went into the army thinking that a tour, even if you go to West Point, that's nine years, right? Four years, you're technically on active duty as a cadet and then five years active duty as an officer. And that's it. Right. You just do your bid. And you, get, you don't go to war. There's no real wars anymore, because what the worst thing that could happen to you is like Persian Gulf War. Hundred hours, almost nobody dies. If you do die, your own Apache helicopter killed you. No big deal. Take some cool pictures, date some German women. That was the plan. So of course, in that moment, we all knew, oh, this is probably gonna be like a war war, maybe. And then it was, and I hoped it would be. So the first pivot like sent me almost further right or further towards like jingoism and militarism. I wanted revenge, my city, you know, my friends and family. Anyway, but Iraq. And I, I probably basically supported the Iraq war. Uh, I used to believe that there were adults in charge, mining the store. And they know something we don't know. Of course, now I know that's not the case at all, right? It's like it's like a bunch of mean girls, men and women, just like arguing and like chattering in the Oval Office. And then like a country gets invaded, like Libya falls apart. I mean, now I know that. I didn't know that at the time. And so, but Iraq happens and then it just didn't go well. Didn't go well quick. And by 2004 and 2005, when I'm a junior and senior at West Point they're they're reading out the names of dead graduates at breakfast and having moments of silence and I'm reading the papers I was always a reader I was just reading the wrong stuff now I was and so I'm exposed to some critical stuff on the war while I'm a cadet at West Point because the history department at West Point is actually pretty open minded much more than people would expect of like the military academy so I'm exposed to Andy Basevich's book The New American Militarism Uh, I read it. It's the first time I ever read anything like that from a veteran. So now I graduate in May of 2005. I know I'm going to Iraq. My entire class ended up in Iraq within like a year and a half, like all of us. And, um, and we knew it and we wanted it most of us. But so by the time I get to Iraq, I'm actually a little skeptical because, but it's, it's more because I think the war's not going well. Maybe it's not winnable. Maybe we're doing it wrong, that kind of thing. Not really systemic critique. So those, so those are the first two. And then really, Two more final ones, I'll say, are in Iraq, as soon as I was in charge of a platoon, as soon as I was in charge of a sector, it became quite apparent that what we were told we were there to do, even in 2006, late 2006, was not anything to do with what was happening on the ground, which was that there was a sectarian civil war that we had caused. Uh, where people were murdering each other in the streets, leaving the bodies for me. And then, then both sides of that civil war were also attacking me. So sometimes I'd be on my way to respond to a sectarian killing or a suicide bombing as like a first responder, which is something that you don't not, you never unsee and you never unsmell. But then you'd get attacked on the way or on the way back. And so you it was just this maelstrom of madness. And uh, I just... I fell for the Iraqi people, believe it or not, even though a lot of soldiers just hate them reflexively, especially after they kill their friends, including some of my soldiers. But that's not the way I went. That's where that sensitive cerebral side kind of came out that I've been repressing. I love the Iraqi people. I love my soldiers. Watching them both die in mass numbers, knowing my country was somewhat behind. That was pretty brutal. So by the time I'm there, like a month, November 2006, I would have described myself as anti-war, anti-Iraq war. So now I decided to stay in the military, blah, 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 a lot of reasons good and bad i can go into some other time if you want or later but i end up in afghanistan second which is kind of odd because you would think afghanistan first since there was at least some tenuous connection to 9-11 and by that point i was a captain i was a company commander of scouts to charge about 120 kids plus afghans uh you know like rapists from the north who can't even speak the local language but they're the future um quite frankly but and literally uh i was a mercenary and that was the, the, the final kind of pivot point. I realized I didn't give two, you know, what's about the, the army, uh, the country, the war. It was like, I'm a mercenary. I have good health care. Uh, I have a, a family and I love my soldiers. And the only reason I'm here is I collect a, a paycheck. I do well enough that I can get accepted to go teach at West Point if I stay in the army, which I eventually did. And I just walk out of here with as many kids as possible all of them preferably. And I will lie to my bosses and I will do whatever it takes uh, to try to keep them safe. And And I think I just had a moment and it kind of comes full circle and I promise I'm done here, but it's a tough question to be really brief on. But it comes full circle on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 when Reuters sends a reporter to do a piece on me, basically. And the reason that happened is they were looking for a New Yorker in the most dangerous like part of the Afghanistan, R.C. South, Kandahar, where I was out in like the sticks of Kandahar. So my brigade, I was the only one. They wanted a captain. They wanted like a company commander who was like, young but in charge of a bunch of stuff who was from New York, who would have maybe views about 9-11, would be a good like story piece. So they sent him to me, which was like a big mistake or not, and I told them the truth. And I basically said what I just said to you. I was like, well, I don't even hate these Taliban. I don't even hate my enemy. Like, they're just farm boys with guns, like hmm. – uh, no, I don't see any catch in a nine 11. I said, and my bosses were less than pleased. And I think I, and when he left and I got yelled at, you know, nothing happened to me. I got a good review and stuff still for the tour, but, uh, yeah, when I realized Jesus, like, what am I doing? And I think I left there knowing I was a mercenary and there was, that was probably my big pivot towards thinking about dissent.
1: Wow uh if i could follow up with that and you can you can answer this uh, on a personal level maybe a higher level whatever whatever you want to do but correct me if i'm wrong i think you were there for both surges uh could you share some of your thoughts or experiences on uh both of those just so the american audience can have a better idea because it's you know it's we forget things after a while The, the americans don't remember uh events too well especially if they don't want to
0: yeah i was just you know bad luck um I once had a colonel tell me that I was, he was like a sociopath actually, but he told me that I was lucky that I had been in combat in command positions um, on the ground in two of the most dangerous areas in both of the surges. I was lucky because that would be really good. It was going to be good on paper for my career. You know what I mean? Because you have to like punch tickets in the army and it's like, it's good. It's actually good. If you survive, Personally, it's like good to be in a dangerous area and have like those combat tours. Of course, it's all luck. It's all luck, really. I mean, I did choose like a dangerous job, I guess, sort of within the army. But I just happened to get to Iraq right before the surge kicked off. So I got extended three months. Petraeus took over. I served under Petraeus twice. He was the senior theater commander for me twice. And then and I'll, I'll drop back to that in a second. And then in 2011, I was in the second big year of the Obama surge. So I got to do a Republican surge, and I got to do a Democrat surge. Right. They uh, they were both absurd. They were both built on lies, or at least overpromised snake oil sales by this wing of senior leadership in the Army, fronted initially by Petraeus, who were phenomenal salesmen of themselves mm. and of what they could produce. And so, two bad things happened. You had a president in both cases, but especially in Bush's case, ready to hide behind the, the bemettled chests of these guys. They're going to save failing wars with this new snake oil, which is counterinsurgency. It's like a touchier, feelier way of war. And we're smart. And these guys have PhDs, a lot of them, right? And so they know what they're doing. And, uh, and of course, so I served in both and found that, again, the narrative, the sale to the American people uh and apathetic and unengaged american people largely because there's no draft and all that so they're willing to believe anything a general tells them still really uh that i just i was really turned off by it i, I call them faux intellectuals i mean these are guys who wrote books like betray us about vietnam for his dissertation that are wrong on, uh, scholars laugh at it real like most real scholars except for like the Sorley types are like what because he's basically arguing the vietnam war could have been won if only and it's like out it's a lack of strategic understanding so In both surges, I saw, again, that gap between what they said we were doing. And the worst part, and I'll finish here basically, the worst part is that they sold them as successes, especially that first one, and it worked. I mean, to this day, you'll hear people with straight faces stand on the floor of the goddamn House and Senate and say the surge worked and Obama ruined it by pulling out. And that's just a total misunderstanding. My first book kind of is about that, hence having the myth of the surge. But the biggest outcome of being in both of those surges is this. I'm a left wing guy, basically, vaguely. But I lost all faith in the duopoly and in party politics because I put a lot of faith in Obama in 08, 07 and 08. I thought he might save me from and a lot of soldiers from going back to Rockford, like another surge or expanding Mm -hmm. the war. But when he sent me on an almost even more absurd, surge, hopeless one to Afghanistan, knowing—I think—knowing think knowing that it wasn't really going to work, but for political reasons, that was it for me. And I'll probably—I'll never forget. And I may never forgive him. And I think that that kind of turned me off to like, like blue versus red politics.
2: All right. Well, if, oh, if I hold on. Well, look, yeah. before you move yeah. on, i got a couple of things I have to unpack there before I forget. Um, you mentioned that you had a commander who was a sociopath. I I had a book come out earlier this year called The Psychopath Epidemic, where I make the case that a lot of the problems that we have in the world today are the direct result of psychopaths and sociopaths being in positions of Power inside of all of our institutions—business, uh, government, religion, the military, the police—you name it. Education, the media. Um, and I've and I've had some debate from people in the military about the ability of psychopaths to rise through the ranks of the military. That they get weeded out. From your experience, how many of the men, both? ranking commanders and people, you know, the rank and file, do you think would uh, be psychopaths or sociopaths?
0: So I'll admit that um, my working knowledge of the actual clinical definitions is like just enough to be dangerous. Um, This battalion commander of mine in Afghanistan was so bad and, and struck so many of the chords of what I had heard about you know, sociopath, or sociopath, psychopath that I started like Googling stuff and like reading it and printing it out. And like me and my lieutenants would be like, oh my God, like he's all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the worst example, but I, I'll say this. I do not trust the military promotion system, no matter how many times they've tried to say that they're changing it to get more input from peers and subordinates. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a top-down system that... Uh, it promotes and positively reinforces some of the most toxic behaviors, like toxic leadership behaviors out there. And uh, I guess I would say that people who rise to the level of battalion and brigade command that I've run into anecdotally, and my friends who I trust, who've told me about theirs, I don't know, 20% uh are pretty hardcore where you would be able to pull out a definition and start highlighting the things that they are really close on these guys have enormous egos they are wildly career driven the amount of power that they're given and that they're seeking to have that is a, like that attracts them has led me to believe that the problem is uh something like Kurt Vonnegut said Vonnegut made a joke that wasn't a joke like he always does he said the problem there's one flaw in the American constitution uh and I don't think there's any way to fix it and it's this only crazy people want to be president and it's funny and all that but I've often thought that about brigade command division command in the army like the only people that you want in those positions are the guys who don't even really want it or don't or don't want it for the typical reasons but unfortunately look here's what I'll say I have worked for people in one case, very directly, two cases, who I can assure you, I've looked deeply into my soul to make sure that I'm not, I'm not making this up for some self-aggrandizing way, who killed soldiers, who got soldiers killed on missions so foolish that they knew were foolish, because they knew that it would impress their boss. And I mean, multiple times, including kids that I commanded. And, uh, it scared me and it still scares me about those type of people and how many of them rise to probably corporate as well, but definitely military leadership mm. and political. Wow. Mm.
2: The um, other thing I wanted, hold on, right? Sorry, man. Put it. The other thing I wanted to uh, just drill down on is you talked about counterinsurgency, which always amuses the hell out of me. It's not like you weren't invading a country. Uh Like they, oh my God! They fought back when you invaded their country, and that makes them an insurgency. No, (laughs) they're they're defending the country that you invaded. But you know, the 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 fact that it was marketed as a counter insurgency, I always found hysterical.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important look. Hitchens used to always say, "Always look to the language, right? Always look to the language. It'll give you away every time." Um, the onus is always on the insurgent with the terminology. Like they're doing something, like why would, there's no discussion of like why they might have an insurgency? we never use the word occupation, which in international law is what we have done across the greater Middle East now for 20 years at least. Um, So that's important. And I also, I'll tell you this, my soldiers used to get pretty, sometimes pretty racist and like just angry about uh, like all Arabs, all Muslims or all Afghans. I get, it, I get it, largely. I mean, we're talking about uh, lower levels of education. Their, 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 their friends are literally dying. I mean, and they're scared to death, you know, and they should be. I used to explain to them, I'd say, listen, uh, we got to treat these people with decency. And they'd be like, yeah, but what about the whatever percent that's the enemy? And they would always like inflate it. I'd be like, it's like 1% that's attacking us, maybe 25% that's like supporting them. But uh, I would say, okay, like, understand, like, how many of you, because they're, you know, we're a little older. I would say, how many of you saw the movie Red Dawn? And I mean, like, I meant the old one back then, you know, uh, like <laughs> right. Patrick Swayze, you know, and then I think in Afghanistan, maybe the second one was already out, but a bunch of them had, and these are kids like who own a lot of guns, who were like from towns like that, who did grow up like hunting and drinking the deer's blood, like in the movie. And I'd be like, okay, like, what did you think about that movie? And they'd be like, that was the awesomest movie ever. And I was like, okay, like, do you think that these Afghans and Iraqis don't see themselves in the role of the Wolverines, Patrick Swayze, see Thomas Howell, how do you think this would go in Texas, where you're from, like in the suburbs of Dallas? And, and I mean, they didn't always like have like a light bulb moment and be like, oh, you're right, sir. But I did kind of, I think, shake some of their confidence about it and just try to make them understand. It's not that weird if we put on – the uniform and carry a weapon on behalf of the abstraction of a state that's not even their state that invaded and now occupies their country. And we rock, we walk around in like RoboCop uniforms, big sunglasses and rifles with like cruiser serve weapons and helicopters overhead. It's not that weird. If people attack us, like it kind of makes sense. And, and, and so. Kind of <laughs> more, yeah, more than kind anyway, of. So that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I think it's, I think it's really important that we, Be careful with our language. I've
2: often drawn the analogy on this show and our other shows between uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, Tony Stark. I mean, billionaire playboy who puts his life on the line to defend his people. Um, Didn't have a cool suit of armor like Tony Stark, but in the US, people celebrate the fictional billionaires, Bruce Wayne and uh, Tony Stark, who go Trump out there are, to, well, <laughs> well, I'm talking about the, the, the ones that I actually know. go and fight the wars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Donald Trump's a fake billionaire, I think. But uh, bin Laden uh, vilified for doing essentially the same thing. Ray, you uh, had questions, sorry. Yeah,
1: if I if we could stick just for a second with the theme of um, the Americans not really remember th- Inconvenient truths if they don't want to. In the introduction to your book, uh, Ghostwriters, you write, "You write, uh, I was surprised by the rapidity of ISIS conquest, but truth be told, by its no, let me try that again. I'm sorry. I was surprised by the rapidity of ISIS conquest, but not truth be told by its birth. So, if you could give us an idea of that birth uh, again, because it's been around for so long, like you said, almost 20 years. I think a lot of Americans have probably forgotten how this all got started in the first place."
0: Sure. I, I enjoy sometimes, like, being provocative and partly hyperbolic if I think that it can tease out a point and make people uncomfortable and maybe challenge mm-hmm. assumptions. So I'll often say, like, when when Trump said, Obama founded ISIS, and they were like, no, like, you don't mean that, really. You mean, like, it indirectly. And he was like, no, he was the founder. I'll often say, like, hey, it's not all wrong. Now, that's not true. Exactly. But I'm purposely being a little flip here, because now, You know, Trump's kind of like making some spurious arguments, partly about Obama pulling out early and stuff. But here's what we do know. Uh, ISIS forms only, only because there's an American invasion of Iraq based on false pretenses and lies. Uh, I watched actually the early parts of this, the the early genesis. So if I can explain, um, one of the things that shook me, a smaller turning point was the number of Iraqis. Sunni and Shia. Sunni and Shia, who said, I like you personally. Like, you're a pretty nice 23-year-old idiot who's in charge of my entire, like, sector of Baghdad. Like, you're a nice one. I hope they don't kill you. But uh, you do know that life was better under Saddam. Like, uh, women and men would, like, even sometimes, like, sit in a cafe together. And, you know, it basically was more secular. And there wasn't this civil war. Right. And that was like kind of jarring as an American, knowing that it was true, like because I was like watching the violence and stuff. So we set off a sectarian civil war for a number of reasons. You know, when a society falls apart, historically and conceptually, the the, the worst elements often rise to the top. The sociopaths and the and, and the psychopaths become the militia leaders, people who were dismissed before, often... Uh become empowered killers for their community, and then the is scared of the other community. So then they are willing to rely on these like young killers. We saw it in Lebanon, right? You know, teenage Christian kids and Muslim kids like standing on corners. They're like gangbangers, but now they're the heroes of the community. So this this starts to happen right away mm-hmm. between Sunni and Shia kind of unleashes forces that have been repressed by Saddam. And uh so I was south of Baghdad initially in Salman Pak and uh We weren't using the word al-Qaeda in Iraq so much yet in late 2006. A lot of the attacks, like beheadings and like serious Sunni-based insurgent attacks down south, they were no longer former Ba'athists. They were no longer the secular Sunni nationalists that were loyal to Saddam. They started to be Islamist, and that was who was doing most of the violence. They were calling themselves uh, al-Tawid al-Jihad. We used to call them JTJ. Um, And... That means like, I don't know, something about monotheism uh, and jihad, I think is what it stands for. Anyway, uh, JTJ, al Jihad, becomes al-Qaeda in Iraq, basically, while I'm there. And uh, then they start using the name. And We get rid of JTJ, we start saying al-Qaeda in Iraq. And al-Qaeda in Iraq, you know, is, again, only a thing because the Sunni communities were being cleansed out by the Shias. The Shias won the civil war, is the point doesn't mean that the Sunnis wouldn't have won if they could. I mean, they had dominated the Shia forever. When there was this massive ethnic cleansing, the Sunnis would would really support anybody who would protect them. And so the worst elements kind of came in. They take over large portions, even though they go dormant during the surge because we paid off a lot of the tribal leaders to turn on them, which, of course, was a a short-term solution that ended up blowing back in our faces largely you know, the 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 kindling was already there. And because they never accepted the Sykes-Picot line, right, the colonialist line that the British and the French had drawn, which is why it's such a straight line in the sand between Syria and Iraq, it did not surprise me that two things would happen. This is my last point on why ISIS forms. It did not surprise me totally because, one, they never accepted that line. So if there was a massive insurgency or civil war on the other side of it, it did not surprise me that the Iraqi a uh, faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq would would get involved over there too to protect sunnis and would use that to grow their power and their legitimacy. And the second thing is when I was leaving Iraq, I had seen so many Shia dominated army and police units because they were full of Shia. That's what we did. We did that. Because uh, we had no we were like we just need to get some guys to take over for us. Only the Shia want to join the army, the sunnis don't accept it. We'll take anybody. But we were taking like Shia exiles, death squad members, who were murdering sunnis and while wearing uniforms they were setting up checkpoints and and murdering sunnis like teenagers and these were soldiers and police we caught them torturing people so when we left and then the uh, and, uh the uh, uh the prime minister uh anyway was it uh was it wasn't alaki yeah, i'll remember it. the uh maliki when prime minister maliki basically alienated all the sunnis that we had bought off and didn't pay them anymore and then started suppressing them which is exactly what he did from 2011 to 2014, and then when the Sunnis started protesting peacefully and he had them shot down in the streets, it did not surprise me that now with the absence of Americans and putting a Shia sectarian government in place, a bigoted chauvinist Shia sectarian government in place, that basically reversed the social order of Saddam, that the Sunnis would again turn to the most extreme elements. So the the Syrian thing combined with this repression of the government we left behind, ISIS made total sense. And so when you say Obama's the founder, no, Obama's not the founder, Uncle Sam is though. Uncle Sam is the founder of ISIS.
2: Even, I I remember Obama himself actually said the US created ISIS before him. I mean, he pointed to the, uh, I don't think he called it an illegal invasion, but as I have to keep reminding Americans in particular, All the time it was, under international law, an illegal invasion in 2003, Bush's illegal invasion. And, uh, you know, I run into uh, Iraqi um, immigrants to Australia all the time. Quite often they're my Uber drivers, Um, things like that. And we get talking about it and they say the same thing you said. Yeah, life was much better under Mm -hmm. Saddam for most people. If you were one of Saddam's enemies... Right. Not good. uh Kurds didn't have a really good uh, run uh, and and if you were considered a an enemy of the state or a threat to the state, yeah, no, it was uh, very bad. You'd end up in a acid bath. but for everybody else, uh, life was pretty good. It was a pretty modern uh, state uh, and then obviously it's become a nightmare and continues to be so for most of the people there yeah. um I, we we've we've probably, Got to move on, I think, to some talking about the current situation in the US, if we can, Danny. I want to talk about American imperialism. Can you describe how it appears to you? And before you do that, I'll, I'll quote you from uh, an article you wrote recently. Uncle Sam's right and duty to forward deploy troops just about anywhere on the planet, garrison the globe, carry out aerial assassinations, and unilaterally implement starvation sanctions. Likewise, the systemic structures that implement and incentivize such rogue state behavior are never questioned especially the existence of a sprawling military-industrial complex that has infiltrated every aspect of public life while stealing money that might have improved America's infrastructure or well-being. It has engorged itself at the taxpayer's expense while peddling American blood money and blood on absurd foreign adventures and autocratic allies, even as it corrupted nearly every prominent public paymaster and policymaker." Well put.
0: Yeah, it's funny when you read that. I say, "Wow, that that sounds like one of my manic rants in uh, an article." I, I mean, I hear that I wrote that, which means I thought that, and it's still. I'm glad that it still shocks me. I hope it never stops shocking me. That 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 what I'm describing there is just like empirically and demonstrably true. Um, empire is a funny word. Imperialism is a funny word because uh, until very recently. All, only really uh kind of serious lefties and uh you know scholars certain scholars would would even really broach empire or imperialism as it applies to the united states with one exception the imperial blip from 1898 to about 1930 you know which i'll get to in a second but i think it's really important that we start using the term you know i used to show my students i would have a whole lesson i would say like is the united states an empire and these are freshman cadets at west point and i know what they're like because i was one and 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 these kids are from most of them are from like texas and the north pacific northwest and stuff they were even more conservative than i was when i came in and i would say is american empire of course they all say no mostly and uh i'd say all right of course because empires look like this and i'd put up like a picture of the roman empire and a picture of, like the british empire like you know when school kids used to paint the globe red you know oh we got kenya let's Add that to the list. I mean, they literally did that in school in London. And so I'd be like, it has to be maritime, at least partly in the case of the Romans. Um, you know, it has to be like direct kind of seizure, like, you know, shade it, you know, and and the key thing, it seems like there has to be a lot of ships involved. You know, you have to like go take a thing. And then I would say to them, but what about America? Was America of an empire from the start? And they're like, No, no, it can't be. It was a republic, it was great. And I'd say, well, you know, there are other types of empires. And I would show them the Mongol Empire and especially the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire, which becomes the Soviet Empire, and show them that there is another type of empire that's always been around that is continental, right? That's land-based. And I would say maybe the one of the reasons America and the Russians hate each other so much is they're like siblings that are so similar because our trajectory historically is like wildly similar. Russia just expands east, right, and cleanses and conquers, you know, I guess what you'd kind of call native peoples or different peoples from the, the white Russians, right? Like the, the you know, Muscovites and the Bielorussians. And then we just went, we just went West. And so, and then of course we have that blip from like 1898 around the Spanish American war till about 1930, where we really are in, like invading and taking over places, especially in like Central America and then out in the Pacific and Caribbean. But then a lot of people are like, hey, that was just a mistake. Like, we decided to play Empire for a while, but that we're not really like that. We had a bad year, you know? It was like a bad phase. We were drinking too much for a while in our lives. Like, it was like a midlife crisis. Right. And the reality is it's just that that was when we went overseas. Like, we'd already been doing it on the continent. And then now that's this empire of bases and forward deployment and economics and it's IMF and World Bank imperialism. And there's just all these different ways. And what I would try to show them is that you have to, like, expand your definition. And in, in, an, in a sense, America is like a hyper hegemon on a level that's really unparalleled in terms of its global reach. And anyway, I just think it's very important that we start using this. I'm very, very skeptical and frustrated and just almost exhausted by these discrete war, anti-war activists sort of like where it's I'm against the Iraq war, but I, the Afghan war is the good war like Obama or You know, I think maybe we should get out of Syria, but we probably need to leave a residual force in Afghanistan, because what I'm really trying to say to them is you don't understand that they're all connected. Troops in Somalia and troops in Syria are the exact same thing, and they can't be understood without understanding the underlying structures of the military-industrial complex. That's feeding the whole thing. So I'm a systemic critic of empire. I'm not just an anti-war activist.
2: Yeah, we... um We did a series of episodes years ago on this show talking about the economics of war Mm. and and looking at it from a predominantly American perspective and drilled down into the industrial military complex. And I think a lot of people think of it as, uh, well, it's weapons manufacturers uh, who are really part of the industrial military complex who benefit from Pentagon funding. And as you said, uh, uh, you know, money that could be going to build infrastructure or pay for healthcare or education going to Pentagon's ever-increasing military budget. But when you drill down into it, I think uh, Tom's did a good analysis of this some years ago that I uh, read. There are thousands and thousands of American businesses that rely on that. Money coming into their budgets every year, and these are people that make everything from socks to software, Coke, condoms, food that goes to bases and around the country, uh, sorry, around the world, as well as all of the different places you have around the country and 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 uh, your ships. Uh, like it, there, it's an entire industry that it supports. And it's free money for them. They don't have to, they they need to keep their Pentagon contract, but that's it. They don't need an army of sales reps. They don't need to pay for advertising. It's 50% of their budget that just comes in every year, easy money. And obviously those business men and women around the country are lobbying their local senator and congressman to keep the keep the money flowing. And to do that, you need to have, you need to be in a state of, constant war right you were just telling me about uh, uh the beltway <laughs> yeah. right you just did a yeah. little visit to the beltway i got to
1: experience and um danny you talked about this whenever you interviews when you talked about there are certain areas of this country where there's a lot of uh places where there's a lot of uh focused uh places get government contracts like northern virginia places in texas and florida and i recently went to uh Northern Virginia. And I was in this area and only because of the leaves have fallen off the trees because it's uh, winter here. Um, I could stand in a, in a, in the yard of a $1.3 million house for a company that gets a lot of government contracts. And I could see four or five houses. And these were all houses that dwarfed mine. They all had big boats that were covered up for the winter and they had these nice cars and everything. And this person was explaining to me, Oh, they, they, they get government contracts, they get government contracts. It's its own little world that just feeds. And if I hadn't, you know, because you hear about it, but when you actually go there and you can see the uh the results of that, it truly does shock you that is a completely different world. And it's its own little world at the same time. It was and I think, a think that a
0: lot of the a lot of the people that are involved in it, uh, especially if they can say it's indirect, which really just means it's one or two steps removed from like working directly for Raytheon. You know, I I think that they just sued their consciences by mostly not thinking about it. But I I think it's so they don't even like consider themselves like if you ask them, like, hey, do you work for the military industrial complex? Like if you gave that survey out, the percentage people who would say, yes, I do, versus the percentage that actually do if we just did the research, I think it'd be like 10% would even would even realize it or admit it or whatever, maybe even know it. They've like lied to themselves about it. But I mean, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans who like otherwise never miss a little league game and push their kids in a swing and always kiss them goodnight And they're family men and women. And yet their, their livelihood only exists. They keep their jobs only if Yemeni babies are bombed. Right. I mean, it's yeah. that, I mean, it really goes, I mean, no one ever really phrases it that way, but that's, that fascinates me. And, and when you look at the budget, when you look at the complicity of the system, the way it's put its, its tentacles into everything, mm-hmm. it reminds me of that, I think it was like a harper's maybe cartoon or something of uh it's like standard oil it's like rockefeller and stuff and it, it shows it as a it shows it as an octopus and mm. it's got its tentacles going to like congress and the courts and like mm. you know what i mean and like the, the the papers and the media i mean they i don't know why they don't make political cartoons about the military industrial complex anymore an octopus wouldn't do though because it needs more than eight tentacles at this point it's worse in other words it than it was do. then And the trade-offs are enormous. Trade-offs are enormous because, yes, certain people make a lot of money off this. Yes, we would lose jobs. We would lose jobs if we stopped being the global arms dealer, if we stopped being a fiscal military state that we kind of are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it doesn't benefit most. And military spending is not the best stimulus. This has been shown by economists, but it means we don't have health care. It means we don't have things that other countries have. And so, you know, the Army's phrase when I was growing up, its slogan was be all you can be. And I think the Navy's is still something wildly absurd and euphemistic, like a global force for good. Uh, but I think the Pentagon needs its own slogan, you know, because like for the whole armed forces and it should like my head would say, like the Department of Defense, this is why you can't have nice things because that's what it means for America.
1: <laughs> I'm hoping to join yeah. Space Force myself, but go ahead. Sorry, Cam. Oh, you're going to be a Guardian? Isn't that what they
0: call it? The Space Force Gal- Guardians? Yeah. Right. you still have a good yeah. soundtrack like that movie, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Like, at least we'll, yeah it so a like, we'll, we'll kill to like Smash Mouth or whatever, you know. I <laughs> yeah. Know.
2: Yeah, it's military Keynesianism uh, run wild. Uh, between military Keynesianism and modern monetary theory, that's really what's propping up the US economy and has been for decades now. Listen, now, let's. can you quickly explain for our listeners what the West Point Mafia is?
0: Yeah, uh, so that article in particular refers to the class of 1986, but it could largely apply to... I could have done that study on almost any class. Uh, what it is is that... Uh, You know, the graduating classes of West Point, the majority of them actually don't do 20 years in the army. Most of them don't do careers, but a lot of them do. And they're overrepresented among generals. So even though West Point officers, maybe 10 or 15% of the officer corps, they're like 50% of the four-star generals. So they still do rise up, but most of them go into the corporate world. That's what most of my friends do. That's what most of them do. They're middle managers at like oil companies, tech companies. They have no expertise in those things they're higher because of their leadership skills right right and so uh the reason i chose the class of 86 and the reason i chose to do this article was i found that terms like military industrial complex and my theory is because there's a hyphen are like too big and abstract to understand like mm-hmm. they just it's it's dry I mean, what you, I really thought I wrote a pretty cool paragraph that you read. Like, I thought that was well-written. It was kind of punchy, but it's still dry because there's no people in it. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of humans in it. And so I thought like, well, I I, I realized that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and uh, Mark Esper, then the Secretary of Defense, were both not only West Pointers, but were from the class of 1986. They were classmates. And so I thought, well, that's fascinating that two classmates from West Point would run diplomacy ostensibly and war basically the two things that America does overseas i mean that was that struck me like wait a second so then i and i had read an article in politico that showed that there was four or five other class 86 guys both in the trump administration but also in like congress working with them, republican types so i said well i guess i shan't sleep for a week because i just had to know I had to know so i really researched this class and what i found out was that there's uh, at least dozens if not scores, I didn't even use. I didn't even write about all of them. Of class of nineteen eighty six grads, who are dug into pretty much every wing of the military industrial complex, and they were specifically dug into the Trump administration, um, and into uh, corporate war profiteering through the direct industrial side of the military industrial complex, like Raytheon, because of course Esper had been a lobbyist for Raytheon, but I found out there were many others in Congress in charge of committees that were in charge of all this you know, uh, in big pharma, they were everywhere. They were everywhere. It, f- it felt like none of them don't work almost directly for the military industrial complex. And a lot of them were really wildly conservative because, uh, West grads used to be even more conservative than they are now. And they came up in the Reagan era and, uh, you know, this was really scary. And, and, and the article, which you can find in the nation or Tom dispatch is, it, it's pretty, I thought it was pretty staggering. It got a lot of attention, at least from my level. And, uh, But the thing is, that could be done for just about, you know, any West Point class. And it's not just West Pointers who do it. But the reason I think it's interesting is because we put West Point on such a pedestal Mm -hmm. and uh, generals and army guys on such a pedestal and all veterans. We fetishize the military, really. And my question was, should we basically, you know, isn't this isn't there something obscene about this that maybe needs to be dug into? Uh, Isn't there something grotesque about guys who all they ever talk about is how, The long gray line and how much they love the young graduates they you know of their institution that they're alumni of but they're directly professionally and pecuniarily invested in the wars continuing to ensure that a new west point lieutenant will be killed again needlessly and that just felt personally grotesque and i thought maybe this is a window to show readers what the military industrial complex looks like in terms of people because the other side of that article, last side of it, is that they are friends. It, 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 they are, they, These guys, they have dinner with their wives on with regularity. They, they, are, they socialize. It is that incestuous. And I just thought if this was going on in any other country, we would call it a Tim Pot dictatorship or crony capitalism or, or you name it, a banana republic. But in America, it's just patriotism.
2: And uh, you make the point uh, that they call themselves the West Point Mafia
0: just losers. Like they would have been made fun of at West point for that. We would call them tool bags. That's like the phrase. Like when guys like act like that, like when they're like, when they are that overt with their like arrogance and stuff and just, we call those, we're like, Oh, that guy's a tool bag. Like, like we wouldn't even have beers with those guys. Like they're not even cool at West point.
2: Yeah. But they don't, they didn't even try to hide the fact they, they sort of are quite proud of the fact that uh, they're running things. They're the octopus. Um, Let's talk about Trump. Uh, At least uh, about half of the American population seems to think he's the worst president in history, but I keep arguing that from an Australian perspective, an outsider's perspective, somebody who pays a lot of attention to global politics and history, that he's a long way from being as bad as either of the Bushes, Reagan, LBJ, Truman, Kennedy, or even Clinton. Sure, he's let over 300,000 people and counting die at home. He's got a couple of Iranian assassinations under his belt now, an attempted coup in Venezuela, support for Israel's crimes against the Palestinians, the Saudi crimes against the Yemenis, but that's just a regular Tuesday for a United States president. At least he hasn't started any wars how do you feel about trump's record from that perspective
0: I, I mean i i think trump is a monster but not necessarily for the reasons that people bring up i mean yes i I think his records not not great on foreign policy but it's certainly not the worst even in modern times as you brought out i mean if, if, if you just did it empirically if you just did it by body counts like bodies that are on him like actual blood on his hands like he fills a smaller stadium than a lot of the presidents you mentioned, and he and 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 the guy who's filling the L.A. Coliseum is Bush, right? And yet, see, my point is, I don't like Trump's policies, but many of them are like a Tuesday when it comes to foreign policy. Some of the domestic stuff is a little bit different, but even there, it's overblown. I think what polite liberals—and that's the word I use—and and it is a pejorative, and it's meant to be. I don't mean it nicely. Polite readers of like the New Yorker, just enough to tell people they do, but who live in like beautiful suburbs and like click like on Black Lives Matter, but would ever go in the street. They don't want like black people living in their neighborhood. Like that's my least favorite person. I have to just be honest with you. And all of those people, what they don't like about Trump is he's coarse. Mm-hmm. He's boorish. They don't like his saying, cosmetic stuff.
2: He just says it out loud. The things right. that presidents have been doing forever in America, Trump's just yeah. open about it. He's yeah. no different. He just doesn't hide it because he's a narcissist, narcissist, yeah, he psychopath. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he just he, he just doesn't give a shit. He just says it out there because he's not a career politician. He doesn't care if he gets elected. Really, he's just about making yeah. money and getting the brand out there and all that kind of stuff. He's he's out he's up uh, out for the glory. He doesn't really have to care about what people think, so he just he tells. You know, this has been one of the reasons people would vote for him is because they say he tells the truth. Tells it like it is. Well, obviously that's not the case. He lies more times before <laughs> breakfast than most of us do in a lifetime. But right. he he's, he he is open about a lot of the stuff that traditional politicians uh, put a put a pretty pay pretty face on they put lipstick on the pig before they push it out the gate you know i,
0: I think this is really important and it gets me in trouble all the time I mean, most of my hate mail now comes from the establishment who left which is a change and it changed with trump because before that join, it came from the join right.
2: the, i expect join to the right. join the club i get it equally from both sides so
0: <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I, I'll, I, I'll. I, that was instructive to me because i don't mind getting it from like the, the neocons i know they hate me they should i get it at least i know it but like mm. I think this is instructive because this happened with Bush a little first, but it wasn't quite as bad because he was a little more polite, right? He was a little, I mean, he was kind of like buffoonish sometimes and made fun mm-hmm. of for that, although that was overblown. But, you know, he wasn't quite as coarse as Trump, but a lot of people were anti-war under Bush. They were, they said they were anti-war. They weren't anti-war, they were anti-Bush, right? Because mm-hmm. when Obama come in and said, well, actually, we're going to surge into Afghanistan, they were like, well, okay. And then there was like, drones are fine now. Like Mm. all the things that like some of the, you know, Obama was better than Bush in a lot of ways, but he wasn't in a whole lot of others and he got a pass. With Trump, it really exposed that polite liberal class I'm talking about. It really exposed them because he went so far in his boorishness that they all became pro-war. Rachel Maddow just said, everything I used to believe, I will turn that, I will invert that in in an afternoon and expect no one to notice. Like Mm -hmm. uh, now anyone who ever worked for the CIA is a hero and they should be on the Rachel Maddow show every night. Right. All this stuff got inverted and it exposed them for who they were. Right. And I, and I think it's a, it's, it's a really dangerous thing. Um, And the thing that I think is most bothersome about it is that Bush has been rehabilitated. George W. Bush. He is a mass murdering war criminal. He's a Mm -hmm. mass murdering war criminal on the Nuremberg principles. Mm. That U.S. He, lawyers were. But a he big paints. Part of
2: it. He paints puppy dogs now,
0: Dan, and so veterans. He, he paints the veterans control. that he maimed. So yeah, out. the ones that he made sure died. He paints their faces, and he's says nice. I mean, the Biden administration. If you look at the national security team coming in, it's basically the front row of John McCain's funeral. That's what it is. That's what. That's mm-hmm. what it's. It's. It's this love fest between the insiders, and it really bothers me. And I'll tell you, if I have to go on another date with a white female polite person from Overland Park. Right from like rich Kansas City suburbs, who tells me during the Trump era that Bush isn't at least Bush loves his family and his country, and he's a good father. Like, there's gonna be an intellectual murder suicide. Um, it, I it, but the re and I'm, I'm personalized it to be funny, but it's true, it has happened to me multiple times, mm-hmm. and like nobody is pretty enough in the world to get away with that anymore with me. Like, I, I just right. and I, but the problem the is, challenge accepted. It's millions yeah. of people who feel that way. Yeah, it's right. really, and this is dangerous stuff. It is dangerous stuff to apologize for Obama. And it's even more dangerous to apologize for Bush.
2: And yes. Trump did uh, that.
0: Trump made it okay to like a, all these By monsters. comparison.
2: Yeah. I had a friend of mine uh, uh, who's, who is who is a self-described progressive Democrat Uh, On Facebook the other day, when I was talking about the recent assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist, was basically defending it. Well, you know, he shouldn't be building nuclear bombs. Um, So Democrats justifying extrajudicial assassinations of scientists, A, I mean you get into the whole argument a whether or not Iran is trying to build a nuclear bomb and b if they were whether or not that's justifiable because look at look at their history yeah I would want to defend myself too after what the uh, you know the U.S. sponsored and funded invasion by uh, Iraq in in 1979 and the subsequent uh, economic sanctions and the threats of military uh, intervention etc., which they get every couple of years from Israel or the United States. Um, uh, yeah, just you know, how do you call yourself a progressive Democrat and then justify extrajudicial assassinations of fucking scientists? It's not even Soleimani, you know, a general, which was appalling in and of itself. A fucking scientist, a physicist. You're justifying the assassination because you believe the, I don't know, the the lifetime of uh, propaganda about Iran is. Uh, sorry, should I not be swearing loudly? You should don't have headphones in. <laughs>
0: No, no, you're
2: good. You're good. Anyway, that kind of shit. Let's let's yeah, keep going on about Biden before uh, we wrap up. Um, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on another West Point grad uh, and board member of Raytheon Lloyd Austin is his pick for secretary of defense. Served as the 12th commander of the United States Central Command, CENTCOM, was the first African-American general officer to lead an army corps in combat, the first African-American to command an entire theater of war, if confirmed to be the first African-American to helm the Defense Department. Retired from military service four years ago, but the law states an officer must have left the service at least seven years ago before becoming Secretary of Defense. It's supposed to be a civilian role so you have civilian oversight of the military they waive that for jim mattis uh and now they're you know biden is trying to get them to waive it for uh lloyd um i don't know man he just seems to me like uh, part of the problem uh, got any thoughts on lloyd austin
0: yeah of course he is i mean he's complicit in the problem if nothing else let's assume that everything about uh, let's assume that everything about his prof- professional reputation is true I don't know him particularly well, except what I've read. And now I've gone a little deep into it. But let's assume that he is the finest officer of his generation. Big assumption, by the way. I still don't think he should be Secretary of Defense. It's pretty simple. Why? Three reasons. Two main and one minor, which isn't minor at all, actually. One, the civil-military stuff. Civil-military relations, civilian primacy. The it is There is a reason that that principle is in place, and therefore that law is in place there's a reason that our founders were really pretty much in agreement on that stuff. They didn't agree about anything. So when people say, like, go back to the founders. I'm like, which ones? Like, they argued all the time. But when it came to, like, empire stuff, at least uh, overseas empire and standing armies, there was a lot of agreement. There's a lot of worry about, like, the curse of Rome and all this. Uh, There's a reason that civilian primacy is important. There's a reason that we want someone who thinks independently of the military. You, You don't necessarily want someone from inside the system running the system, especially when he still knows the generals that are running the, the organizations that he's directly in charge of, that he's overseeing, that he's the manager of, some of them worked for him. You know, they were two-star generals when he was a four-star general, right? So the, the, they probably had Thanksgivings together. It's a problem, big problem. You wouldn't do that in other jobs, right? The main one though is the civil, the military industrial complex stuff. I mean, we're, we're putting guys in charge. He was on the Raytheon board. He's also on the new core steel board. See, the thing about Austin is, I can't stand Flournoy, and I'm glad that she's not in. I mean, she was deep in this system. She even has ties to the UAE. So a lot of progressives were like, "Well, we beat Flournoy, and they take Austin. They're like, we got to be happy with it." And I'm like, no, because my third thing is that we need to reject the circumscribed choices that we're fed. We are fed these choices. Like the only choice you have. Hey, look, you got to take somebody who works for Atheon. Everybody does at least he's black. I mean, that's the, that's the stuff we're getting and I'm being flip on purpose, but it's true. Huh. Biden used the term black diverse or African-American or first at like African-Americans, like a baker's dozen times in his Atlantic article, which is only a thousand words explaining why they should, why he's nominating Lloyd Austin. It's like, no, there are other choices. And in fact, we should only be looking at other choices. If we're really progressive, if we really want civilian privacy, if we really want an independent leadership,
2: so what does this tell us about the kind of administration Biden and Harris are going to be running?
0: Biden said that if you elect me president, nothing fundamental will change. All right. He was saying it about the economy and rich people. You know, he was being a little specific, but actually people's I'm language. Not Bernie,
2: was- I'm not Bernie Sanders, basically. Right.
0: Right. Well, that's it. That's what it is. Like, look, be scared of that guy. But I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really well, good old
2: boy. Mm. Like time, Joe.
0: I, I ride Amtrak and I talk about Scranton a lot, but in real mm. life, I'm, I'm going to protect you. I've been doing it since 1972 when you elected me as a backlash anti-civil rights Democrat. Like people forget that. Like Biden's mm. not a progressive. Biden yeah. was part of that first wave of border state blue dog, kind of like anti, you know, almost like backlash candidates. But the thing about the Biden team is, uh, not only is it like the front row of the McCain funeral which i think i coined but it's it's a it's a who's who of the people who crafted all of the worst things that obama did okay it's it it, it is a who's who of war crimes in libya and syria and yemen you know among other things and they're all involved in the same consulting firms that work within the military industrial complex they are all working for the same think tanks that are the second and sixth largest recipients of defense contractor money, that being uh, CNAS, which I founded and CSIS. They, all of them work for one of those two, basically the archetype does. And they, they're even married to somebody in the game, like all of them. That's what the archetypal Biden bro or Biden sis is. Look, this is a status quo squad and putting real hope in them to change. Look, I don't think they'll invade another Iraq, but it's, it's basically another four or eight years um, of, you know, Obama, low intensity war, low intensity for Americans, not so low intensity for Yemenis and Syrians and whoever else. Yeah. The system you won't know, shake all unless we shake it in the streets.
2: You know, as we've we've pointed out a million times on our various shows, uh, you know, Biden, you uh, Senator from probably the most corrupt state in the United States, Delaware. It's basically the Virgin Islands, uh, you know, uh, of of the United States. And the amount of money laundering that goes on, offshore companies, invisible, you know, uh, wealth transfer going on. He was he was the guy from there for forty years, right? Uh, he's the guy that pushed through the Crime Bill in nineteen eighty four and the Crime Bill in nineteen ninety four that's put millions of mostly minority men and some women in in jail, destroyed countless millions of families over the last uh, 30, 40 years. He's the guy that uh, is the best the Democrats could come up with uh, to replace Trump with. It's it's
0: horrifying. Yeah, but Trump's really rude. I don't know if you know
2: Yeah, that. that's right. Yeah, I do. And he's got bad like, hair. And,
0: and Trump's policies are awful too in a lot of those areas. Sure. But- yeah, but I think I think that's this is an important point. Um, you know what no one ever talks about? Vice presidents. They fascinate me. Um, the Democratic Party always looks at the language. I like absurd Orwellian language. It fascinates me. Mm. Language turn, may turn out to be the love of my life. I know it was my first love, but uh, I'm still single. I think it's going to turn out to be the love of my life. And I'm okay with that. Language I, I really like deconstructing. Isn't it interesting in America that the Democratic Party is one of the least democratic institutions? Meaning that it doesn't they do not care about what the voters think they do not care It's a couple of ways to know this one the massive progressive wave that empowered bernie sanders over the course of five years that energized the democratic party that biden couldn't have won without Right. we got a big middle finger all of us did all of us in that wing from biden from his picks his picks are a big middle finger especially on national security policy he was like yeah i know that you guys were really energized around Bernie twice and maybe we stole it from you twice. Uh, but we're not going to give you anything, Like you get nothing you get. And we don't care what you think. Uh, that's one way. And then the the second way is look who they like pick for their vice presidents. Um, it's usually somebody who was polling around like 2%. Like you think in a more democratic structure, there'd be this idea that like, listen, um, Maybe it needs to be Bernie or at least the number three guy. Like, like, let's give the, let's form a coalition. Let's give the voters like what they want. Let's take, let's care about their interests. No, they pick some, the DNC basically picks these people. Okay. Yeah. It's the individual campaign, but let's be clear. I mean, I'm a big believer that like, look, Biden is in many ways a front for a democratic party establishment. This is, this is party rule. This isn't that different. I mean, I'm going to be controversial here. It's not all that different from like the, uh, the prime minister in Ethiopia where, you know, the the old EPRDF, basically, you know, the party ran the state, and they called it a democracy. And now it's not exactly that bad here. But the Democratic Party is not a very democratic institution in the way it runs. It's very much smoke filled rooms, except now it's like kale that they eat, instead of smoking cigars, but it's still backdoor room decisions. Biden was picked by Obama, despite what was he get? What was he polling? How was he doing in the primary in 2008? Right. He was like, what, two, four five percent. It was a Hillary versus Obama thing from the start. It was supposed to be an, an anointment of Hillary. Biden didn't get picked because Americans wanted him to be president. That's not why he got put one heartbeat away from the presidency. he got put there because the Democratic Party establishment and the Obama administration thought that Obama was weak on foreign policy. He needed a white male who had foreign policy experience. Exactly. The scared, exactly. the scared, racist Democrats from those border states and stuff would would be okay with Obama because Biden's in there. And with Kamala, you got kind of the same thing. She wasn't polling all that high. She wasn't doing all that well. And the Democratic Party and the Biden administration doesn't even care that there's video evidence that she called him a racist and a segregationist, basically, in in like one of the more famous debate moments. All is forgiven. It's Mm -hmm. not Democratic. And so I think that tells you a lot about what we can expect from this coming administration. Trump's gone and I'm happy about that. But I think that if we even pause, pause from our dissent critique and activism against this administration, then like we don't we're 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 done. But for. you will.
2: That's what happened under Obama. It was eight years of progressives just looking the other way. And defending Obama to the hill, you know, extrajudicial drone assassinations of American citizens. That's okay. And
0: their, and their teenagers and daughters,
2: it's, it's the uh, it's the um, embodiment of Nixon's favorite f- famous quote on the frost interview well if the president does it then it must be legal right if Obama does it it must be okay yeah. you know let's let's not think too hard about it let's uh, let's wrap up um, with this we learned yesterday that former uh, national security advisor Michael Flynn Supposedly, according to several news sources, uh, quoting anonymous sources, which is always dubious, but uh, the story is that in this meeting in the Oval Office last week, I think it was Friday, your time, he uh, Trump asked him to expand on an idea that he'd already floated out there that Trump should impose martial law and deploy the military to rerun the election in some of the uh, states that Trump lost. Um. Now, I've been talking about whether or not Trump would declare martial law for the last year or so. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of my American friends say, well, he, he couldn't. The military would never go for that. Yeah. Um, uh, but historical international experience suggests that you only need one. You only need one general, really, to back something like this Uh And, you know, it's going to be cause for some sort of a civil war often. From your experience and perspective, if the unthinkable were to happen and Trump was to declare martial law before January 20th, uh, how do you think the military would respond?
0: I think that uh, that's a difficult prediction. And... Neither side really would like the most likely answer, at least according to my opinion. Um, the The Trumpsters believe somewhat accurately that the Democrats have put too much stock in the generals being more on their side these days. You know, that the generals don't like Trump. and so like the Democrats have kind of made generals into heroes retired or active, like because there was this vague sense that some of them were anti-trump and me- and many are kind of put off by him. Uh, they say, well, yeah, but the rank and file is is MAGA, and uh, that's largely true still. Even though there's more dissent in the military and there's more uh, diversity in the military, there are there's definitely more like more progressive people in the military than there were even 20 years ago. The combat units, no one likes to talk about this. The combat units, the infantry, the cavalry, the armor units, the special forces, especially. The more elite the unit gets, the whiter and maler it gets, and the more southern, mountain western, and rust belt it gets. All of this is demonstrable. Uh, That's a little scary. My former soldiers are mostly pro-Trump, the scouts who worked for me. I get a pass from them. I won't get executed in the revolution if they win because I was nice to them in the breach. So I get a pass, but a lot of these guys really hate most of what I stand for. It's not all of them. There is a more progressive wave and the generals may be a little more kind of urbane and, you know, uh, opposed to Trump a little bit, or at least distrustful of him. But, but I think that the both sides are a little wrong because I think that, you know, Trump is wrong to think that everyone in the military is for him. I do think there will be some generals who probably will kind of balk on this, but, but this is the one thing I'm sure of. If that ever happened, the all-volunteer American military, especially the Army, will never recover. I mean, it may never recover, not for generations. It's going to come apart. It's going to come apart internally. Both sides are going to be surprised. Trumpsters are going to be surprised by how many of the generals balk and maybe like, refuse. And the liberals are going to be even more surprised by how many military men uh, just go go along with the orders of the commander-in-chief. How many of them are just kind of like inculcated in the chain of command values? And how many of the rank and file are with him? I mean, even like mid-range officers and high-level sergeants, too. The people who actually run the show, right? I mean, the generals give orders, but I just, I just think that this, the, the army's gonna gonna, gonna kind of go to war with itself if that ever happens. And it's really gonna be extraordinarily scary. It's Syria, right?
2: I mean, we saw this happen. Ray and I, on one of our other series, The Bullshit Filter, we did 25 episodes on the Syrian Civil War. Mm -hmm. This is going back, what, shit, three or four years ago, we we did that. We went into, you know, an inordinate amount of detail on the background of the Syrian Civil War, going right back to the assassin, the the death of Muhammad, and (laughs) explaining the Sunni Shia divide and blah, 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 blah. But, um, you know, the, the, we saw this in the Syrian civil war. Like, you know, the, it only takes uh, a small percentage of the military to go, you know what, we're not going to go along. We, we want to break yeah. away. Um, and, you know, Assad had support from some branches of the military and then some of the military split away and then they got supported by international actors, including the U.S., and you end up very quickly overnight in a in a complete clusterfuck morass. Which here we are, what nine years later, and it's uh, unfortunately still going on. It's very easy, even though Assad and his father, like Saddam, uh, well, his father mostly, you know, had been able to keep uh, a country that was artificially created by the British and the French together through pure force of will and strength and uh, threats of violence if you step out of line for decades, mm-hmm. uh, in a heartbeat, it just fell apart when some of the military defected.
0: I, if I just add one quick thing, I know we're wrapping up. I've never made this analogy, but I think it's important. You, you made it and I'm going to build on it. The Syrian professional military was not completely different from the American one, because it tracks what I'm describing. The Alawi minority, the Alawites, were overrepresented not only in the officer corps, but were overrepresented in the elite units, right? And so the Sunnis were at lower ranks usually, And we're in like the less elite infantry units and like the support units and stuff. And so a lot of the defectors from the Free Syrian Army were not from the most elite units. This mattered in the breach, right? This mattered when the fighting started, that the best units, the best equipment were were more Alawite, more loyal to Assad. Well, we don't think of America as sectarian. We don't think of it as like ethnically divided. But like, let's say that ethnoculturally, we are at the precipice of division that the culture wars started in the 90s and are even worse now wouldn't you know like i said the most elite units again are white male southern and mountain western they're trump's people they're his voters Mm. Mm. and and in terms of how the how quickly this would go now this is an extreme scenario i don't think this will actually i don't think any of this will actually happen but if it does to make your point that this could overnight change imagine a situation we're in the state of georgia georgia is an important state now with this election right one of the more important states in terms of swing and closeness, it would probably be one of the states that would be redone, right, if the military was put into martial law. There's three major bases, three major bases in Georgia. Fort Benning, home of the Ranger Battalion and Infantry Training, and one brigade of the 3rd Infantry Division, and Fort Stewart, Georgia, uh, which is home of the 3rd Infantry Division, two of its brigades, and then there's Fort Gordon, which is the home of the Signal Corps, support people. Now, at Fort Gordon, if I was a betting man, Vegas odds, That base, because it is a support unit, it is populated by an overrepresented proportion of black and Hispanic soldiers and women. So is the leadership there. More likely that that general in charge of that base falls. Less likely, white and male dominated, Trump supporting politically sort of cultural groups at Fort Stewart and Fort Benning, which have most of the tanks and the guns and the combat experience, because that's what they do, don't balk and support trump and just like that overnight even in a microcosm in the state of georgia which happens to have a lot of active duty military bases you could have the army at war with itself along ethno cultural religious grounds and in an overnight i don't think this will happen but it could and, and and this is how it might divide it is more tenuous than we think and we really could become syria like that we have way more in common with them than we like to admit
2: yeah, as a, again, as a rank outsider, although I'm married to an American, I spend a lot of time in America. Um, I have, you know, well, I was going to say friends like Ray, but let's, 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 employees mm. uh, like Ray. 50, 50. <laughs> Lovers like Ray, <laughs> uh, only, but only when we're in Vegas. Uh, yeah. You know, America has seemed to me for a long time Like it is in a downward spiral, and there are increasing tensions between the haves and the have-nots, and I I I don't see a way out. I, I see it getting worse. Like I've been saying to people for a long time. Like even with Trump when he's out of office, do you think these tensions between the far right and the fake left are going to heal? Are they like? Are they gonna get better? Are they going to stay the same or are they going to get worse during a Biden-Harris administration for four or probably eight years? I don't see them getting better. I don't see them staying the same. I see them progressively getting worse, the tensions growing, and where does that all end? You're a historian. We're historians. When you reach a certain tipping point in the level of hatred, like it's gone beyond... uh uh uh, politics now it's 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 gone to the level of tribalism and and hatred at a at, at a level between some not all of the population of course but certain sections of the population how you know if you look across history modern history like syria Uh, And you can go back to even ancient times, like Ray and I do. Lots of shows on Rome and ancient Greece, and of course we do the Cold War show that you're on now, where we talk about this. But historically, countries don't pull themselves out of this well. It it takes a civil war or an international war. If you take Germany, for example, and Italy in the 30s, it took an international took World War II. If you take, uh, you know. uh, Cuba or any other country that's had a civil war, the United States with its own first civil war, um, which I'm sure pretty pretty sure soon will refer to as the first American civil war. Um, you know, I, I, I really struggle to see. I, I don't think it's going to happen under Trump because I think Trump doesn't have the spine for it. Although, as I keep saying, he knows once he's out of office, SDNYAG is just going to hurl a uh, ton of lawsuits at him for crimes committed before he got into the White House. So like Caesar, before he crossed the Rubicon, he is staring down the barrel of uh, spending the rest of his life fighting off lawsuits and or going to jail and probably his kids are going to get wrapped up in that as well. Mm. Uh, you know, it was enough for Caesar to go, fuck it, I'll just take uh, Legion across the, well, half a Legion across the Rubicon uh, rather than face being put in the docks and put in exile. Um, I, You know, I can understand that that's got to be an option for Trump that he's got to be thinking about. His future doesn't look very bright. He's got to go into permanent exile or stand and face the music, which is not going to be pretty, or Or, the third alternative... Roll the dice, yeah. Well, Caesar said it had already rolled, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, but the he dice fly high, exactly. But I, but I do think he's essentially a coward, um, mm. or you know, just doesn't want to put himself in that situation. But
0: um, I don't know, man. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, are, you, are you optimistic about the future of the United States? No, absolutely not. I, I mean, honestly, fr- frankly, I think uh, uh, like Americans in general, like their commitment to optimism about their own experiment. It, it is bordered on delusional for very long. I mean, for a long time. I, I don't know how this ends, but I don't think it ends well. There are many times when I find myself wondering why are all these different parts and types of people in America part of the same country? I'm not calling for secession. I'm not romanticizing any of that. I'm not. I don't want any of that. But I wonder sometimes because I, I travel a lot when there's no pandemic and to a lot of different places. I do not feel like I'm in the same country when I'm, in, yeah, we speak the same language, but they're such different places. The values are so different. People always say, no, no, it's our commitment to share democratic values. We don't agree on that anymore. It's so far along that we don't agree with those values are. I mean, our, our two visions of what America should be, or maybe four or five different visions, they're so far apart. And in the American civil war, you know, they're, the point came where the two sides were just so far apart in a million ways, you know, and uh, there were, these compromises weren't going to work anymore. And it's more complicated than that, you know, as a historian. But I mean, there was like a huge cultural divide that that maybe had always been there, but it just grew and grew. I wrote an article called Sectarian America, for sheer post that I got plastered around. I think you guys would enjoy it. And I talk about the different kindling, like the seven or eight different things that I think make America kind of ripe for a possible civil war of sorts. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of them, but it's like the the religiosity of america and the division there one side is like wildly religious like believes in angels and that the apocalypse is near and the other side doesn't that's a pretty big divide right we the you know there's the racial stuff but there's the guns i mean there's the guns and that isn't america is exceptional for a lot of reasons just all the wrong ones usually and one of them is that we have twice as many guns per capita as the next closest which is yemen which is a real life wild west and, uh, and oh, by the way, the guns aren't, and they are not proportionately divvied out, which is why, if and when the civil war were to happen, it will. When you know, I won't live through it, but it, but it, it will be the impetus for my first novel, which may be titled "You Can't Charge a Hill in Skinny Jeans," because that's funny. And I love hipsters just enough kind of sort of, but like I live in a liberal college town where I'm the only one who's progressive with military experience. So I will be drafted to be the warlord, but I'm going to be in charge of militia where the guys who don't own guns are not cultured places with guns, don't know how to use them, weren't in the military, and we're going to get massacred.
2: But they'll be able to make a great latte in your uh, time off. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And I'm not saying that, like, I want to hang out and live in a place with like militarist people and that we all should be in the military and be like Starship Troopers. I'm just pointing out the realities in the world as it is. It's not pretty. Uh, So anyway, I think this is all really important. And um, I I hope I hope we're all wrong. That's why I I genuinely want to be proven wrong.
2: You know, it's uh, you know. I think I, I saw a TikTok that Neil deGrasse Tyson the, uh, did the other day. He was talking about coronavirus as a shot across the bow of the human race in terms of how we responded. And I look at the difference between Australia and the US um, as one example. You know, we we have a conservative prime minister who's a fundamentalist Christian member of a Happy Clapper Church. Um, at least half the population think he's a complete fucking idiot and probably a good percentage of the other half of the population think he is as well, even the people that vote for him. But they just vote for him for his conservative because he's conservative. But when he stood up in March and said, we're going to go into a lockdown, we're going to lock down the borders, we're going to lock down the economy, it's probably going to last for six months, uh, we need to take this shit seriously, the entire country went, yeah, all right, sounds like a good idea, Scott, let's do that. Uh, Cause fuck it, we don't want to. We don't want to, you know, die. We, yeah, well, we don't want to. We don't. Want, <laughs> we don't want people to die unnecessarily. The same thing happened in 1996 when another conservative prime minister, John Howard, after we had a mass shooting in Tasmania, yep. stood up and yep. said, "We're going to ban semi-automatic weapons," and the entire country went, "Yeah, good idea, John." Even the people who hated John went, "Yeah." probably good idea john let's do it and today even people on the left like myself will say that was a good thing that he did you know he was a complete cock for the rest of the rest of the stuff that he did for the rest of his time in government but that one thing nobody in australia yeah, I mean, the small minority but the vast majority 99 of the population still goes yeah that was a that was a fucking good decision we haven't had a mass shooting in 24 years right it was good um when America goes through it, obviously it's a very different situation. You can't even get your shit together uh, to handle an existential, no, it's not an existential threat, but you know, CDC is now predicting there'll be 500,000 dead uh sydney had sydney's got a new outbreak at the moment 80 80 cases they've got in sydney we we shut the borders immediately within a day victoria queensland sydney's in lockdown we shut all of our borders again that only just opened up at the 1st of december we shut all the borders sorry fucking we're not kidding around here we've got to go on a lockdown i hear about americans opening up when there are still thousands of deaths a day deaths not cases and they're opening up we're like what the fuck is wrong with you people? Like, it's not oh, right. hard. It's not right. rocket science. We're doing it. It's and a hoax. Enough yeah. of my rant. I, I just think right. I see. I see the handling of Rona in the US as uh, an an indication of if a civil war was to break out how you would have. Can you come together as a people for the common good and put aside your political and religious and ethnic differences, socioeconomic differences, and can you quickly combine for the sake of the common good? We are lucky that we can still do that, but we're sliding towards America, which has been my fear for the last 30 years, is that we're sliding down the American You know, laissez faire, Christian right sort of a model. Um, And America obviously has just demonstrated that you can't, you can't, beyond us, you can't come together for something that's threatening you. You can come together for a war to go and invade someone, but when it's threatening you at home, you can't pull together for the common good.
0: No, I mean, I think that. Look, if nothing else, coronavirus was a great exposure of underlying truths that have been there for a very long time, whether it was our healthcare system or our willingness to work for the common good, sacrifice for others, compromises, all of it, all of it. I mean, coronavirus was a great sort of equalizer uh, or not equalizer, kind of an exposer, but it, it, it just, I mean, it laid us bare. The latest, there lots of things have, but there was something about this because this was the first thing that really did affect everybody. At least, should you know, it, it does it whether they believe it or not. Right. You know, war doesn't because there's no draft. I mean, it does because they're it's affecting their lives, the militarization of society, their tax dollars. But yeah, I think uh, it's a great exposure. I hope that Americans still can come together. Uh, but my head and even my heart <laughs> tells me. Probably not.
2: Yeah, we probably. all we all we all hope that you can, but um I'm not optimistic. Uh look, we've taken up way more of your time than we intended. We appreciate it, Danny. You've probably got other things to do. Follow Danny at, on Twitter at Skepticalvet. Check out his podcast, Fortress on a Hill. Check out his books. I've read the Ghost Riders one. It was a terrific read. I've got to read the other one. Um thank you for your service, Danny. And I mean after leaving the military in particular.
0: Well, thanks. That's I, that's the one I think that I'm more proud of, ultimately. But uh, but I appreciate it. this was a great conversation, and uh, let's do it again sometime.
2: Yeah, would love to. Cheers. Thank you. All right, man. Sorry for taking up so much of your time, no, but um...
0: no worries. I give long answers, and then I get excited about what we're talking about. I'm, you know, <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't have a hard stop, like you know, my hard stop right now is that I really should be researching like my follow-on column on Tigray and Ethiopia because you know everyone cares so much about that. <laughs> but uh, but I do. So if I don't have a hard stop, I I love having these conversations. If it's a good interview, and you guys are awesome, so thanks.
2: Thanks, Danny. Well, uh, right, we'll be in
0: touch. We'll be- yeah. I, whenever the link's up, I'll spread it wide like I usually do. Cheers, mate. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. 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 An iron curtain has descended across the continent.